What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. And the thing I've got to say first thing is Happy New Year. Okay? I know you've wanted to say that. I've wanted to say that. Look, the year 2020 is not to blame for everything we went through, but it kind of feels that way. So, Happy New Year. Happy 2021, whatever it may bring. It can't, really, it can't be worse than 2020, can it? Our special guest this week is the Attorney General of the District of Columbia. His name is Carl Racine. Mr. Racine, it's great to see you. How are you? Doing well. Happy New Year to you and your family. Thank you. So, folks, because we're nothing if not transparent on the show, The Takeout, I explain everything we do, how we do it, the behind the scenes stuff. We're not doing this on New Year's morning, okay? We're just not. We're doing it on December 28th, Monday, because we tape early sometimes for lots of different reasons. One of the reasons we're doing that is after today, I'm taking the rest of the week off and I need a little, re- little break. So, we're doing this on Monday. So, understand that this is not the New Year's Day show on New Year's Day, but it is the New Year's Day show. So, first thing, because many in our audience, Mr. Racine, may not know this, uh, what does the Attorney General do in the District of Columbia, and does that differ from what Attorneys General do in other states? It's a great question. Uh, Attorneys General throughout the country do the following things. Number one, they're the Attorney General responsible for all law in their states or jurisdictions. That means they advise the mayor or the governor and all of the agencies in the state about how to comply with law. The second thing they do is they defend the state, and for me, that's the District of Columbia, in court whenever the district is sued. We also, in our office, we use the law as a tool to help DC's most vulnerable people. So we'll go after folks like slumlords and others who steal money from elderly folks or engage in consumer protection violations. The last point I'll make is that over the last eight years, the public has seen that the role of the state attorney general has become ascendant in that the state attorney generals have engaged in lawsuits against various administrations in order to protect the residents of their state and enforce checks and balances and the rule of law. To that point, uh, Mr. Attorney General, I can't remember a time, meaning the last four years during the Trump administration, when attorneys general at the state level have been more involved in exactly what you described, both suing the attorney, the, the uh, sitting administration, the Trump administration on behalf of various interpretations of law or policies propounded by the Trump administration, or aligning themselves with the Trump administration at a state level. Um your overall observation of that trend and what it has meant this last four years? 
Well, I think it's uh, really important uh, that folks who do your job, uh, journalism, historians, can go back and actually review why suits were brought and what the outcome was. And so certainly when President Obama became president, the Republican Attorney General's Association really put the pedal to the metal to try to stop the president's agenda. In particular, remember all the litigation that's still ongoing around Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. Now, when President Trump came into office, there were a slew of executive orders that really impacted the Constitution of the United States. You'll remember the first iteration of the Muslim travel ban on the very weekend of his inauguration. Well, the attorneys general on the Democratic side filed suit there, and it wasn't until three iterations of the Muslim travel ban that the Supreme Court narrowly upheld it. Here's the fact. Since President Trump has taken office, my colleagues and I have sued about 158 times. Guess what, Major? We've won 80% of those lawsuits, and the decisions were made by both Republican presidential-appointed federal judges and state judges and Democrat-appointed state and federal judges. What that tells you is in America, where we've been very concerned about checks and balances, the federal bench and the state courts have upheld the check and balance and determined that overwhelmingly President Trump has been lawless. I want to ask you a broader philosophical question for a moment. Um, listening to that answer, some in my audience might say to themselves, well, it sounds like if Republican attorneys general went one direction and Democratic attorney generals went another, they're treating the Constitution as if it's a partisan document. Is it? Well, that's not the way I was taught law, uh, that the Constitution is not a partisan document, that in fact, the, the Constitution, uh, in my view, is a living and breathing document as to be interpreted by the United States Supreme Court and the federal judiciary. That's why, again, it's so important to note that judges appointed by Republican presidents and judges appointed by Democratic presidents have held President Trump to account. Just remember the most recent decision around the elections nine to zero. And I want to stand up and say a couple of things. There are exceptional Republican attorneys general who have a lot of integrity and courage and have withstood withering criticism. I'm thinking about the attorney general from Georgia, Chris Carr, a dear friend of mine, who's getting all kinds of hate social media and worse. I'm also thinking about the attorney general Republican from Idaho, Lawrence Wasden, who flatly refused to join the Texas AG and the others who simply were, I think, moving in an undemocratic way, and the Supreme Court found that. I want to get more deeply into that lawsuit in a second, but I want to advance our conversation. We're talking as if this is January 1st. We're celebrating New Year's Day. In five days in this nation's capital, there will be an event in the Congress to count and certify and accept as valid, which we all know they are, the electoral votes, which have already been certified and presented via the states. The president has asked for a rally. There is a sense that some of his supporters want to come to this city, Washington, D.C., and be in some manner or form disruptive. How are you preparing for that? What is your level of anxiety? Uh, my level of anxiety is high. Uh, my preparation is even more intense than that. And so the Office of Attorney General is working with the Metropolitan Police Department, our federal uh, compatriots, the FBI, 
And we're also working with not-for-profit organizations who have a lot of data on hate groups like the Proud Boys and others who appear to uh, want to listen to the president, come down to the District of Columbia and do what they did just a few weeks ago, pick fights, create damage, uh, damage property, and then act in a very threatening way right in front of two of the most historic African-American churches in the District of Columbia. The District of Columbia is ready for that. Uh, and I'm confident that we'll be able to allow peace uh, to win over hate. There are those in my audience, Mr. Attorney General, and we have more than 75 radio stations around the country who are Trump supporters. And I can hear them almost saying, well, if you remember the inauguration of President Trump, that was marred by violence. It wasn't marred by right-wing violence. It was marred by left-wing violence. That would be their words. So they're like, well, why don't you talk about that? Or why don't you remember that? That, that made the president's inauguration, which should have been a moment of celebration, kind of ugly. And that wasn't our fault. Well, I think it's really important uh, to try to, in this you know, difficult time of hyper-partisanship, focus on facts. And the facts are that with respect to President Trump, he literally has given breath, fresh air, and encouragement to hate groups. Hate is up dramatically since the president came into office. Um, we know that We've got the Tree of Life uh, event in Pittsburgh that annihilated Jewish worshipers. We know at the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, again, worshipers were annihilated. The Pulse nightclub in Orlando, people were shot up and killed only because of, you know, of who they love. And so we're seeing an environment of hate, which I would argue to my Republican friends is very, very different than what we saw uh, when President Trump was inaugurated, and that everyone should work together to be united against hate. We shouldn't hate people because they're Black, or because they're Asian, or because they're straight, or because they're gay, or because they uh, pray uh, to you know, an Islamic uh, faith or a Jewish faith. We should be better than that. That's the voice of Carl Racine. He is the Attorney General of the District of Columbia. I'm Major Garrett. You are listening to, watching, and most thoroughly enjoying this New Year's edition of The Takeout. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Continuing our conversation with Carl Racine. He is the Attorney General of the District of Columbia. One of the things we left off and I said we'd get back to in the segment, first segment, Mr. Attorney General, is that lawsuit filed by the Texas Attorney General. Yes. I believe 17 other Republican Attorneys General signed on to that lawsuit, which essentially asked the Supreme Court to do something that in my memory... And I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a constitutional law expert, but I don't have any memory in my reading or experience of one state asking the Supreme Court to invalidate the election results in four other states. The Supreme Court did not. But I wonder from your perspective, if those attorneys general who signed on to that did something that essentially 
runs counter to their oath, which I'm sure says that they are to uphold the Constitution, not only of their state, but of the union. Well, I certainly think that the lawsuit that the Texas Attorney General uh, and the other 17 Republican attorneys general joined was frivolous. Um, The lawsuit was one where the Supreme Court literally took about three or four days to reject on a 9-0 basis. And Major, you're exactly right. Uh, Any resident in Texas does not have legal cause to be upset as to how Pennsylvania voters voted. Ours is a federalist system where every vote matters. And of course, we have the Electoral College. Uh, And so no Texas residents, I'm sorry, you cannot sue because of how Wisconsin came out on the presidential election. The other piece I'll I'll really emphasize here, Major, is again, let's focus on facts. Um, A lot of folks, especially the president, had been preaching about systematic voter fraud. In over 90 lawsuits, federal judge, again, appointed by Republicans, appointed by Democrats, have all held unanimously that there's no evidence of systematic voter fraud. Remember the movie, Show Me the Money, Where's the Beef? Um, Honestly, there is no systematic voter fraud, and we should just let bygones be bygones. I do want to say one thing, because I think it's important to not vilify those 17 Republican AGs. They're in a tough place. They've got a president of the United States who has a hardcore constituent group who won't hesitate to run people against them, And he's essentially putting withering pressure on them to yield. I would hope that they would follow the course of many of their colleagues and yield. But honestly, uh, I'm ready to shake their hand uh, once we get on the other side of President Biden's inauguration and see if we can do some work together. That's what our country needs. You know, Mr. Attorney General, we uh, love pop culture here at this show, so I want to make sure that we get all of our pop culture references precisely accurate. Show Me the Money, Jerry Maguire is the movie. (laughs) Where's the Beef? That's a Wendy's ad from circa 1984 or so, 84, 83, 85. So that's our pop culture reference for a a second there. So um, you want to work with the attorneys general, shake their hand on the other side of the inauguration, which brings up a point. Do you have any idea, Mr. Attorney General, here in the District of Columbia, what President-elect Biden's inauguration is actually going to look like? We've been told it's going to be very much smaller. Uh, There will be something on the west front of the Capitol, but not a large uh, assemblage of spectators. Do you know anything else about what this is going to look like? And will it be kind of a somber event for the country to behold, consistent with sort of where we are with the pandemic? You know, I don't have that inside uh, intelligence. Um, I have heard that it's going to be more virtual than in person. Um, and certainly to the extent it's in person, if it's not too cold, it should be outside. You know, I- I'm really mindful of what Dr. Fauci said uh, just uh, just yesterday. And he said that the worst is yet to come. Um, so many people, of course, have traveled for Thanksgiving and also, you know, the Christmas uh, holiday Hanukkah and, and Kwanzaa. And the downside there uh, is that it's likely that the virus continues to spread. So I hope uh, that Vice uh, President-elect Kamala Harris and President-elect Biden take maximum precaution uh, so as to not get people sick. And just for our audience to remind them that reference to yesterday is to December 27th. We're recording this on December 28th, but we are wishing you a very happy new year because the show is going to run on New Year's Day. So, Mr. Attorney General, I want to ask you... um, how involved are you within the District of Columbia government? I imagine you are to a fairly well. 
And how would you explain to those in my audience who still don't quite understand how it's within the power of the state to tell a local business, in this case, a restaurant, in this example, you have to close down because of a public health issue. You've heard the commentary. You've heard the pushback. I have my rights. How, how is it that you have all this power to essentially close my business, influence in a negative way my livelihood when I've done nothing wrong? Well, I think those are fair questions uh, for uh, business people, worshipers, uh, and others uh, impacted by COVID restrictions to ask. And I think it's really important for government officials to calmly explain to them why it is uh, some of the freedoms are being restricted. Well, the law is really clear. The law gives the government the responsibility fundamentally to keep its residents safe. And we, of course, are in a global pandemic that also has impacted the District of Columbia and our great neighbors in, the, in Maryland and Virginia. Uh, relying on science, the government has determined that certain interaction inside at a bar in a restaurant um, has a heightened possibility of getting people sick. And in order to limit the possibility of a greater spread so that hospitals become debilitated, zero ICU beds, the District of Columbia and other jurisdictions have tried to be prudent and restrict some public activities. I think it's important for us to value life. If we value life now, freedom is just around the corner, particularly given the great news and the great science around the vaccine. What is your philosophical point of view as to whether or not a local jurisdiction or a federal government or a state government can or should require, by penalty of law, the wearing of a mask in this pandemic situation? I think when you're talking about a pandemic uh, that can literally cause havoc economically and in death and illness to residents of a jurisdiction, a mask uh, requirement is eminently lawful. Now, I do think that those requirements should be short in terms of duration, and certainly there should be allowance for when people are in the great outdoors, fishing, hunting, doing whatever you're doing. But I think here we have to be prudent and reasonable and look towards tomorrow, because COVID-19 is not a hoax, and people are indeed dying, nearly 265,000 of them. A far, far, far greater numbers than that, Mr. Attorney General. I believe we're up over 330,000 nationally now. Um, and I think I should let our audience know that here in the District of Columbia, the city government has been very cautious. It did not open as much as neighboring Maryland or Virginia did during the summer and fall months. It has proceeded, I think, with a high degree of caution. And as compared to its neighbors, has had a lower incident rate, hospitalization and death, correct? That is correct. I mean, if you look at D.C. numbers, we are about 42nd in regards to positive cases. And on a per capita basis with respect to death, we're about uh, 17th or 18th. Now, the reality, as you know, Major, uh, from your job and living in the District of Columbia, D.C. is a city of haves and have nots. And so in certain parts of the District of Columbia, Ward 7, Ward 8, pockets of Ward 4 and 5, there has been more positive tests, and indeed, the deaths have occurred, and they have befallen disproportionately on black and brown citizens. In part because they're 
necessarily a portion of that workforce that didn't have the luxury. As I often say on this show, I have the luxury to work at home. Welcome to my living room. I do this show and almost all of my CBS work from home. That is an enormous privilege. It is an enormous benefit and safety valve in this circumstance. Exactly Many right. of those residents you just referred to don't have that luxury. You're, you're exactly right. And so the men and women who I'm referring to um, go to work every single day. Um, they usually uh, transport themselves via public transportation, incurring more risk. They are usually both in the front of the house and the back of the house, working and interacting sometimes with staff as well as customers. And then they go back home and their dwellings are not necessarily well-spaced. Oftentimes live in buildings, literally unit, right next to unit, right next to unit. It's a recipe uh, for the spreading of the disease. We should be thankful uh, to those workers. That's the voice of Carl Racine, the Attorney General of the District of Columbia. I'm Major Garrett, back for segment three of The Takeout in just a second. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Carl Racine, the Attorney General of the District of Columbia, is our special guest. And Mr. Attorney General, you're also the president of the AG Association nationwide, true? I am. I'm honored to have been named president of the National Association of Attorney General, bipartisan organization made up of 56 state attorneys general. And in your career trajectory, you are unique in that role, are you not, sir? You know, I am. I am the second African-American to be uh, president of the National Association of Attorney General and the first immigrant and, of course, the first from a territory. We want to be a state major, the District of Columbia. (laughs) So let's launch into that very quickly. For those in my audience who maybe have heard about it but don't understand from the District of Columbia's perspective the rationale for statehood, briefly, what is it? Uh, Just fairness, equality. Um, If you believe in the fight at the Boston Tea Party, uh, no taxation without representation, then you should be an ardent supporter of D.C. statehood. Now, there are views in regards to whether the Constitution allows this. But one thing we do know is that we can amend and fix the Constitution. Congress can grant the District of Columbia statehood. Uh, You know and I know that the District of Columbia pays more taxes. The residents of the District of Columbia pay more taxes per capita than any resident of any other state. We send our men and women to war, and boy, do we fight for democracy. There's no reason why the District of Columbia should not be a state and have all those benefits, including two U.S. senators and a congressperson who can vote in the House. The District of Columbia has a delegate in Congress who can vote on the floor. Eleanor Holmes Norton, but she can't vote in committee. Is that correct? That is correct. And her voting on the floor varies on who the president is. Oh, is that right? Okay, got it. That's correct. All right. Now, uh, of course, uh, again, referring to those in my audience who are Republicans, they would say, well, okay, that just means two more Democratic senators in perpetuity. What do I get out of that? Well, I think what you get out of it is democracy. Um, There's no reason for me to deny North Dakota and South Dakota resident statehood. By the way, their population is not that far away from the population of the District of Columbia um, because they are Republican states. Our system works when we respect people equally and don't make distinctions just based on politics. The idea that Democrats should be denied an opportunity just because they're Democrats 
is as offensive as the idea that Republicans should be denied an opportunity because they're Republicans. One of the things you learn when you move to the District of Columbia is you learn something about its original and now current boundaries. And mm-hmm. there is a very important story in American history about slavery and the boundaries of the District of Columbia. Could you tell my audience a little bit about that? Well, we'll just go to Northern Virginia now and uh, go to Arlington. And what you'll find is that that used to be part of the District of Columbia. Um, that section that is Arlington, Virginia, right literally across the Potomac, um, retroceded. In other words, they left the District of Columbia to go to the Commonwealth of Virginia. And Major, as you well said, the reason why they left the District of Columbia was because slavery was not permitted in D.C. It was in the Commonwealth. I want to tell you again, uh, my initiative at the National Association of Attorney General this year with all of my 55 other colleagues at the National... <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Is to focus in on hate. Our country has a hate history that if we're honest about it, we can dig into, maybe have uncomfortable conversations, but come out a much stronger and united country. You know, Mr. Attorney General, that the very president of the United States has said that conversation is one based on a hatred of America. He says the actual hatred is if you want to go back through all that history, you're trying to teach children in this country to hate their country and hate its founding. Your response? My response is um, I think we should teach uh, children our history. And our part of our history is that we have evolved as a country that just like individuals, we've never been perfect. And indeed, if you look at our American struggle, you've seen bursts of massive improvement. And sometimes you've seen, you know, some dialing back of progress. Think about the Native Americans, right? We were going to enslave them. They refused. We ended up exiling them out west. We brought in a new uh, crop of workers who were not going to pay. They were from Africa. Okay. We freed the slaves. Thank God for President Lincoln. And then all of a sudden, what happened? Um, you know, basically slavery by any other name with Reconstruction, Jim Crow and whatnot. Women have, didn't have the right to vote for a long, long time. Or There's own property. Rip, indeed, or, or, or own property. Um, immigrants, different sorts of immigrants, Irish, Asians, were specifically discriminated against. It doesn't denigrate America for us to understand our full history. It actually allows us a better opportunity to achieve our great destiny. And in that light, Mr. Attorney General, do you believe that there needs to be first a conversation and then a check written around the idea of reparations? You know, I think the way to think about reparations um, is clearly systematic racism. That's what resulted in Africans being enslaved. After they were free, the laws were systematically written and enforced to ensure that African-Americans were treated more harshly and poorly, less equally. What happens now? Here we have a pandemic, and the pandemic is making clear that our health disparities, 
derive, I think, in a straight line uh, from the dehumanization of, of Black folks. We also see it in our criminal justice system where we have disparate sentences and convictions on things that Black folks do and white folks do. And so I think when you talk about a reckoning, that's a truth telling. Then you talk about future actions. I think they have to focus on housing, finance, criminal justice, and health. Those are ways in which people of color have been systematically discriminated against in our country. Who should President-elect Biden select as his attorney general? You know, I was hoping you didn't ask that. (laughs) (laughs) You know that and I know that, but I I was going to ask it anyway. Well, thank you very much. Let me just say two (laughs) two things. Um, I want to really lift up the state attorneys general in the United States of America. They're the ones who brought suit to stand up for democracy. Do you remember when the U.S. Postal Service Master um, DeJoya Mm -hmm. uh, was going about trying to slow down mail voting? Well, it was our lawsuits that put a halt to that. And of course, it was our lawsuits that led to the Texas suit being dismissed. Here's my point. There are so many Democratic state AG who should be in the conversation to be the Attorney General of the United States. After all, they've been Attorney General in other states. Um, Unfortunately, we're not. Uh, And what I understand, there are a couple, three folks in the mix. uh, And I'll, um, I'll leave it at that. I do, um, to be very honest, I think that um, you know Doug Jones uh, and what he has done uh, in Alabama, uh, you know, really, really strikes a chord with me. Um, both his prosecutorial experience as well as being a progressive in Alabama, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, Mr. Attorney General, for my benefit of my audience, explain ever so briefly what Doug Jones' prosecutorial history is in Alabama that resonates so much with you. So the four little girls uh, in Birmingham. Um, church, uh, who were, you know, literally walking uh, to church, uh, were blown up by a terrorist. That terrorist was allowed to walk freely in the streets of Alabama for decades. Doug Jones, as a uh, United States attorney, brought a criminal action against uh, the culprit. And then he left his job and became a state AG uh, in Alabama to continue the prosecution of that matter. It's a significant case. There are other candidates who are highly qualified. You know, that story uh, really hits me deeply. Do you think this is the most important cabinet pick for President-elect Biden? I think the rule of law is extraordinarily important in America. And we've had a glimpse at what happens when the rule of law is perverted. We've seen the president weigh in on criminal cases to help his friends. We've seen the president pardon arguably obstructed justice to protect the president's conduct. We've seen kids separated the border in ways that we've never seen in America. And the attorney general, uh, first Sessions and then Barr, stood right by. The office of attorney general in the United States is a critical job. We need a great lawyer who has strong principles and respects every individual in our country. That's the voice of Carl Racine, the Attorney General of the District of Columbia. Stay tuned for segment four, The Takeout, in just a second. The Takeout with Major Garrett is brought to you in part by Kansas City Steaks. Visit KansasCitySteaks.com today and use code SIZZLE2020 at checkout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. 
Carl Racine, the Attorney General of the District of Columbia, is our special guest. And Mr. Attorney General, uh, continuing our conversation, not only about who President-elect Biden will or will not pick as Attorney General, the deeper issue is what can be done within a new incoming Biden administration to address some of these issues you've described as a high priority for the country and for you, criminal justice reform. Does that have to be something that Congress can only do, or are there specific actions right out of the gate that an incoming Biden administration can and should take? It's a really great question. Uh, there are uh, significant actions that the Biden administration and the new attorney general can take uh, right away. Um, first, the new attorney general can get behind funding of local and state governments so that they can maintain data. Data is really important in the criminal justice system. And a lot of states and a lot of localities don't have the money to keep data. With data, we can better identify racial disparities and other disparities, and also identify the evidence-based practices that actually reduce crime. So that's really important. Second, I think the Department of Justice can work with Congress in passing the Clean Slate Act, which allows for the sealing or expungement of records of individuals who have long since paid their debt to society and unfortunately have that scarlet letter of felon, F, on their forehead that hurts them get jobs, housing, and the like. Um, additionally, pr prison reform is incredibly important. We have a, a prison system right now that frankly does not train, educate, and otherwise put people who are behind bars in position to live lives, lives following the law when they come out. You need to train people and put resources into that process. So those are three quick and ready items that the Department of Justice under President Biden can literally begin on day one. So the president, President Trump, that is, often talked about the First Step Act as a significant legislative accomplishment of his administration. And the First Step Act was an early and initial effort to uh, address and redress parts of the federal criminal code. But it implies a second step and a third step. And if Republicans were in favor of the first, they ought to be in favor of the second. Do you believe something of that ilk could happen even in a closely divided House and Senate, which it's going to be regardless of the outcome of the January 5th runoffs in Georgia? Yes. And I have to believe in the power uh, of the yes. Let me first give credit where credit is due. Uh, a bipartisan Congress and the president of the United States got the first act done. Give President Trump a lot of credit. Also, the National Association of Attorneys General worked really hard to support Congress and President Trump in passing that law. The second and third step act must go farther than the first. What we've got to do is really narrow the door, the front door of the criminal justice system and only bring in to the jails those people who are a danger to you, me and our community. We punish too many misdemeanors by putting them in jail. Think about uh, the George Floyd uh, case for one moment. Remember what he was accused of, perhaps passing a counterfeit dollar to a convenience store. What happened? He ended up being killed on the streets for that. In the District of Columbia, Major, you'll be happy to know that the Office of Attorney General working with the Metropolitan Police Department have issued uh, a new program where we enhance citations hey, if you mess up for a misdemeanor and you're not causing anyone any physical harm, we're going to give you a ticket and ask you to come back to court. 
The early results, we've been doing this now for nine months, is that the citation program has not resulted in violent crime. In other words, narrow the front door of the jails and of the criminal justice system, treat kids like kids, right? We know that the brain data makes clear you have three kids, you know that our kids are going to act up as they continue to mature and develop. Of course, kids can be punished if they create harm or wrong, but they should be treated as kids and after a few years, be able to move on uh, from their mistake. I have so much more to talk about. Right. And just to go down a couple of other names that are seared into our memory, Michael Brown stole yes. some c- cigars. That's a low-level, modest, small-time incident. Eric Garner, was, it was essentially a cigarette caper, uh, very low-level. I mean, neither one of those things, I, as I hear you say, Mr. Attorney General, warranted the kind of aggressive police intervention and should have been treated as crime sufficient for where they ultimately escalated to. And they're not the only two, but those are the two that instantly spring to my mind. Those are fantastic examples. And those are the real interactions that uh, law enforcement makes every single day uh, with residents you know, throughout the country. Um, and clearly what we've got to do to protect law enforcement as well as residents is make a distinction uh, between misdemeanors and violent offenses, treat those misdemeanors and nonviolent offenses in a way where people come to court at a certain set time and place, don't bring them into the system. And I want to ask you something, and I apologize to my audience in advance, because this is a little dense, it's a little bit in the weeds, but it's something I've read a lot about, and I want to get your interpretation of. One of the things that happened in Ferguson was not just about Michael Brown. It was about a long history of the city police department being used by the city to administer tickets, and then you couldn't pay the tickets, and then your fines increased, and your penalties increased on top of the underlying ticket. And that was a budget mechanism for the city of Ferguson, Missouri. Civil asset forfeiture essentially is the dressed up term for it. Lots of jurisdictions use this. And it seems to me, Mr. Attorney General, quite separate from the police department, this becomes a tool that divides the community, not only number one, it is a kind of a revenue source that cities get addicted to, and it deepens all of these senses of grievance, isolation, and hostility. Well, I think you're exactly right. Uh, Fines, fees, and penalties going to the government um, as a result of all of these minor interactions that needn't even result in most cases in an arrest, needn't certainly result in someone going to jail. And the fact is, guess what happens when you levy a fine, a penalty, or a fee on someone who's poor? They can't make payment. And guess what happens when you triple that? They can't make payment. And in certain jurisdictions, when they can't make payment, guess what happens to them? They get hauled into court. Another area of reform that's huge is probation and parole. 4.5 million Americans are on probation or parole. The overwhelming majority of times that they are cited for infractions are literally minor infractions, a bad drug test, perhaps shoplifting, and guess what happens to those 4.5 who are out? They're brought back into jail. They do far more significant time than their underlying offense called for, and it's simply unfair, and it does have a disproportionate impact on black and brown and poor people. 
I want to make this point really important because we've just gone through a period of time where being divisive has been our chief characteristic. Let's be uniting here. No person because of their race or because of their class should be held to a different standard in our criminal law. This is an American value that we should uphold whether we're Democrat or Republican. That's the voice of Carl Racine. He's the Attorney General of the District of Columbia. For our radio audience, we have to say farewell. Again, I say Happy New Year, but for those on the podcast platform and CBSN, stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Especial in just a second. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Again, welcome to my dining room and Happy New Year. I'm Major Garrett. This is your episode of The Takeout Outtake Especial. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. We're so happy you're with us. Thanks for joining us on the podcast platform, you early adopters, and of course, our beloved audience on CBSN. Carl Racine, the Attorney General of the District of Columbia, is our special guest, Mr. Attorney General. Because we like to call this our fun and games segment a little bit, we lighten it up ever so slightly. So I have three questions. The show is going on four years old, and every single guest on this show, we've done it every single week, those four years, has answered this question. So in whichever order you prefer, most influential book in your life, all-time or one of your all-time favorite movies, and if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely to listen to? Okay. Well, let's jump to it. Uh, Music-wise, I love J. Cole. Uh, J. Cole is a deep lyricist, rapper. Um, I think most poignantly, he talks about the trauma um, and hurt uh, that underlies so many communities in the United States. My favorite song of his is Friends. So those of you who know J. Cole know what, you talk, what, what that's about. Those of you who don't, check it out and just read the lyrics. So that's J. Cole. Um, my, my, I'll tell you what I'm reading right now. I've got um, Isabel Wilkerson's cast on my desk. And I got to tell you, I'm coming prepared. Um, <laughs> I've got my guy, Ural's, yep. a great book. And I just think this is an extraordinary uh, book uh, for thinking about so many issues that we talked about in our earlier conversation, race, nationalism, fairness, globalism, uh, technology, uh, and the like. Um, so, Read the title for my podcast listeners. Sure. 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. It's an extraordinary book written by the author of Sapiens. Right. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, one of your favorite or all-time favorite movie? You know, I'm going to kind of date myself, Myself, I think. Um, I like Brian's song, uh, Back in the Day. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, Gail Sayers, of course, mm-hmm. is an extraordinary running back uh, for the uh, you know, Chicago Bears. Brian Piccolo uh, was his uh, mate. I thought that transcended the boundaries of race mm-hmm. um, in a way that was prophetic. And actually, to be honest with you, um, I think after I read that book, saw the movie, I, I'm not, I treat everybody the same. Yep. I will tell you, Mr. Attorney General, I'm actually glad you mentioned that. You're the first person who's ever mentioned that movie. Uh, I saw that it was a TV movie or made for TV movie or uh, anyway, it was a kind of an event. I I was maybe eight or nine years old and it is the first thing I ever saw in a movie theater or on television that made me cry uncontrollably. I could not stop weeping after the end of that movie and for so many different reasons. But 
it also was enormously instructive to me as someone growing up in San Diego, California, not a place where there was anywhere. This again, this would be like 1970. So I saw on the news strife over busing in lots of communities in America. We really didn't have that in San Diego. What busing we did have was pretty much accepted and nobody really uh, was in conflict over it. But I didn't know that many African-American children at all. But that movie and that story sensitized me from that point forward about some of these things that previous to that I had no sense, I didn't have any awareness of. I just wasn't sensitized to it. So it's an enormously important cultural moment, I think. And for me, the first example of art that can just crush you emotionally and just get you to a completely different place. So I totally agree with you. And thank you for sharing that. Um, I can, you know, feel uh, your recollection, uh, you know, palpably. I want to tell you, you know, I played um, sports growing up, uh, St. John's High School, where your kids went to school and then the University of Pennsylvania on the basketball team. I will be honest with you. Um, I was in a lot of locker rooms and there was a lot of jocularity in the rooms and there was um, honestly an anti-gay lesbian bent to a lot of the locker room chatter. My mother gave me a book that moved me just as Brian's song moved you um, called Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin. Mm. When I read that book in 10th grade, honestly, I became, I'm sure, not a fun guy in the locker room because I didn't participate in any of the banter um, around differences, around treating people like others or dehumanizing someone just because of how they are, who they love or how they look. Wow. Well, that's a tremendous gift to receive uh, from your mother. And I think anyone who's uh, participated in sports, certainly of that era, the 70s, 80s, 90s, can identify with what you said you heard. Uh, you, I, I certainly heard it when I was playing sports in high school. I didn't play sports in college. Um, but it was part of the mystique, part of the attitude, and part of the projection, I think, of athletes of that era. And we have, as you said earlier, talking about the evolution of our country, evolved in lots of different ways. And sometimes I wonder, Mr. Attorney General, if we don't give ourselves enough credit as a country, we understandably look at the things that we don't do well, but we have evolved and we move sometimes with tremendous speed once we set our minds to it. Well, I think that's right. And I think that we have to accentuate um, you know, the progress. That's not relying or resting on your laurels, right? You want to do better as a competitor every day. And so I think the objective for Americans and those who love America is for us to improve every day towards actually living out, actualizing our greatest virtues, equality for all, fairness and justice. Um, those are our enduring principles. Let's be proud about our accomplishments, but let's wake up the next day to take it even closer to the ideal. That's the voice of Carl Racine. He is the Attorney General of the District of Columbia. He's been our special guest this week. Mr. Attorney General, it's been a great pleasure, Brian. Happy New Year, and thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks, Major. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio.
If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.